Our scripture reading this afternoon is from certain portions of Romans. We begin in chapter 3. We'll be reading a few verses in chapter 5 and chapter 12. But beginning in chapter 3, verse 19 through 25. Romans 3, verse 19. Hear God's true and eternal word. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And now we go to chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 11. Therefore, being justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope Maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And now, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now we go to chapter 12, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith." Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. And let us now... I invite you again to open God's Word in Romans chapter 12. We'll be looking at some of the portions that we have read and and elsewhere in Romans, but mainly in chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 1 and 2 at this moment. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, we have arrived at the third portion, um, which is the theme of gratitude. It is under the theme of gratitude, and it includes under this title the whole domain of the life of sanctification, a life of obedience, our holiness before the Lord and in this world, our living in the Spirit, our life of good works. And as we find in the very first um, question, this is Lord's Day 32, and I'll be reading now question 86. If you want to follow it along, it's page 66 in the back of our Psalters. There's, there are two questions. One is put into the positive, the next one into the negative. So question 86. Since then we are delivered from our misery, merely of grace through Christ, and that's salvation, without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? Why must we obey? Because the mindset in those days of the church had been, we obey in order to be saved. If we are saved outside of our obedience, what, what really is the use of obedience? And the answer, because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude, to God for His blessings, and that He may be praised by us, also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation or our lives, others may be gained to Christ. And then question 87, Cannot they then be saved who continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. So in the first question of what is therefore obedience, what, what is obedience for? The first reason is that we are to then testify to this world our gratitude to God. Secondly, that we would praise God. This will bring the blessed fruit of assurance of our faith, of our salvation. And fourthly, the, the reality of outreach, that we would be a witness to this whole world. That's evangelism. And, and the, the following question puts it in the negative, only to emphasize all the more how important it is that a believer would live in obedience. But you notice, it's, obedience is no longer to be understood in the sense of, I'm obeying in order to achieve something. Now, that had been the mindset in many ways through the whole last part of the Middle Ages. And once they realized that Obedience does not usher in salvation. There had to be a question that would even say, why then do we obey? Well, we obey because it is our gratitude. It is our praise. It blesses us with assurance. And it is useful to this world so that others will know Christ. They will see Christ in us. That's the summary, and, and we will resort to that as we go through, through the passage that we, we have. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 are, are precious. It is in one of the footnotes of this very um, question, this very passage. Um, it's an ideal passage to consider what is the whole reason for holiness, why obedience, 
Why good works? And we will see, first of all, in in verse 1 of Romans 12, the foundation of your holiness. Um, What is holiness based upon? Where does obedience flow out of? And then we will see the heart of your holiness. Like, how how is holiness supposed to be expressed? Um, And so, first of all, the foundation of your holiness. So, what is holiness based upon? And, and the reason we, we, we have this before us is because in, in chapter 12 of verse 1, Paul is, of course, making reference to everything that came before chapter 12. He says, I beseech you, therefore, I, I, I implore you, therefore. And the word therefore is focusing on everything from 1 to 11. Chapter 1 through 11 is what he's referring to in terms of his supplication. I I have begun writing to you in chapter 1 all the way to 11. And based upon these things, I implore, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And if you notice... He is calling all that went before the mercies of God. Chapter 1 through 11, in essence, are these mercies of God. And and as we look at what these mercies are, we will understand why even the word mercies, why are they called mercies? Now, you, you may have heard it referred that chapter 12 on to the rest of Romans is the practical part of Romans. And what came before is the doctrinal part. Or you could say or have heard it being said, it's the theoretical part. There's really a misconception when people say this. It is true that from chapter 12 on, there are many commands and many imperatives in telling us what to do. But that doesn't mean that what came before is not practical. It is actually supposed to be seen as very practical, immensely practical, because the way we need to understand is that from chapter 12 on, everything that we're told to obey and everything that we're told to live like could not exist without chapter 1 through 11. That's how practical the doctrinal part is. It is the foundation of your holiness. Um, We could... We could say there are two problems if anyone tries to live a moral moral life without the foundation of chapter 1 through 11. There would be two main problems. One is that it will never last. And secondly, is that it won't ever be true. It won't be sincere. It won't bring true gratitude. It won't bring praise to the Lord. It won't be bringing a true sense of assurance. It might even bring a false sense of assurance. And, of course, it won't be good into reaching out and being an evangelistic force in the world when we try to live a moral life without the foundation of chapter 1 through 11. And and let me give some examples of how this is so. Um, There are many systems in the world, like I said, that, that are trying to say that we should live moral lives, that there is good and evil and that we should be good and choose good over evil. And let me start with, with humanism. Humanism, I mentioned it this morning, yes, it is a secular system that only thinks of this world as material, but to be honest to what they are proposing, they, they are speaking in terms of trying to help people live better lives. And they talk in terms of doing what is better for society and what is good, at least in how they view what is good. But see, this is where the problem begins. That what is good is really based on utilitarianism. It is based on what is profitable and based upon what is productive for the present society. So what may be good for a certain country is not good for this one. And what may have been good in the past is no longer good today. So it goes changing. It is all based upon the perceptions of the people. And, and this is what I mean. That, that is not what will produce gratitude. You, you don't do good in that system because you're grateful there really is no one to be grateful for or grateful to. It does not usher praise to God because they even deny God. They're not even seeking any kind of assurance. 
And of course, it does not lead others to God because, as we saw the very premise, they go from the very beginning that they don't believe there is such a thing as a divine being. So there's no gratitude in humanism. They, they try to do good because it's just common sense and it will help people. But it's not out of a sense of gratitude. There's no one to be grateful to. And then we can think of, of other systems of religion like spiritism and Hinduism and Mormonism. They, they all have something in common in that they are highly moral systems. You are trying to do good because that's how you escalate in your spiritual attainment. And there is no salvation in those systems without doing good. So, again... You don't do good in those systems out of gratitude. You do it out of self-interest. And if it is self-interest, there's no praise to God. In those systems, it promotes a false sense of assurance. They think they are okay because of all the good they are doing. And it leads others away from God and not to God. Because in those systems, you don't really need God. It is God who needs us. And then I could talk about one more group of people, group of of religions, very similar to this one that I just mentioned, but they're closer in a sense to what could even be Christianity, Um, legalistic Christianity. And what falls in line with that is even Islam and even Judaism. And those systems, they again are doing good in a legalistic way. They, they think this way. Maybe as I do good, I'll atone for my evil. And in my doing good, I will eventually get to a place of pleasing God. And being accepted by God. And attaining a righteousness that will please Him. And again, there's no gratitude there. You are only doing good out of fear. There's no praise to God. Because it's not thanks to Him that we're trying to do good. There's even a sense of of a certain anger toward God because He seems to have His standards way too high. It's false assurance that it promotes and it leads people away from God. So this is what I mean of how practical Romans 1 through 11 is because when we go to Romans 1 through 11, which is what we're going to do right now, in, in, in six brief points, we will summarize what in many ways is familiar to you. You've read through Romans. Um, you've heard sermons in Romans. Uh, we will summarize in six little phrases the mercies of God. And you will see this reality that the only way to respond to these mercies is with Gratitude, And it is the only system of religion in the world where your obedience will be a reflection of your gratitude. Not fear. Not self-interest. Not pride. But gratitude. Now, where does it start? It starts, where do these mercies start? They start, of course, in chapter 1, when Paul introduces his subject, and he says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It starts, of course, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the first foundation, and this is what I'm saying. You will never be holy, you will never live in obedience if there is no gospel of Christ, if there is no salvation in your life. Look, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So the gospel of Christ is the first part of these mercies of God. It it is based on this that Paul is beseeching our obedience. And so it be, begins with, with Christ. And, and how, how are you saved? Um, to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and in believing, there is this righteousness that is revealed. Look at verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And and so you see right there a summary of what I'm even saying. You are saved, there will be righteousness. And we are talking about obedience. We are talking about a life of 
righteousness, of holiness. But we'll qualify this righteousness has two elements to it. But let's start with the gospel of Christ. Secondly, the second mercies of God, it's exactly where Paul goes in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he spends the next verses all the way to chapter 3 indicting the whole world as those who are in sin, who have fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you are one who, of course, is living in rebellion, he begins with that group, and then he gravitates to those who live a moral life, looking at the law and trying to live in a moral way, even outside of religion, perhaps. But then he goes to the religious and to the teacher of the law, and he says, all of these, whoever you are, in verse 19 of chapter 3, where we began reading, is where he indicts the whole world. He says that every mouth may be stopped, chapter 9, chapter 3, 19, and the whole world may become guilty before God. The reason I'm bringing this point, although it's the bad news of the gospel, this explains why Paul calls it the mercies of God. Because everything that he's explaining that God has given to us is given to a people that doesn't deserve anything. Not a single one of us deserve this great gift of God of salvation. But this is why God gave the gift, because all of us needed it. Not a single one could have attained any kind of goodness, any kind of righteousness, if God had not given His Son. And so the mercies of God are not just the gospel, but also the reality that it's knowing that you are a sinner. That's, that's number two. Knowing that you need the gospel. Knowing that you are someone who has fallen short of the glory of God. Knowing that in your merit there is absolutely no way to attain unto salvation. See, that's the only way, beloved, that there will be an element of gratitude in your heart. If you think that there's anything in your own achievement that can make you arrive, there's nothing to be grateful for but what you do. But the moment you acknowledge that I am lost in my sins, but you see there's a Christ on a cross who was, who was there executed for sinners, and that the handwriting of your sins are nailed to the tree, the very sight of Christ and the knowledge of your sin is what gives the beginning of gratitude to your heart. It's the only way there can be gratitude. That's why no system in the world there will ever be gratitude. Because every system in the world begins with man, begins with me trying to do what I can and let the best, best man win. And, then, and it's just a patting on the back and others patting other people. You did it. They're grateful to themselves. They might be grateful to a system. They might be grateful to someone who tutored them. But there's no gratitude to God. Until we begin with this, we know the gospel. We know we're sinners. Number three, we know this most blessed truth that God has revealed His righteousness. This is where we single out the reality that for those who are sinners, Christ reveals His righteousness. And see, this righteousness is not just that you, out of obedience, live a righteous life, but God, out of His grace, declares you righteousness with His own righteousness. Because this is what we read in verse verse 22 of chapter 3, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith. We're not talking here primarily of our obedience. We're talking about our justification. So that's number three. It is... Knowing this revealed righteousness, the the truth of justification, that God declares you righteous. And this leads immediately to four. It's it's almost combined. Justification is also forgiveness. But I want to single out as number four the reality of forgiveness so that we we have that before us in verse 25 of chapter 3. Whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith. It's always by faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. 
Beloved, you, you see what I'm meaning? You, God is adding one mercy upon another. And what do you do? What do I do? We respond in gratitude. Number five, this justification, this being declared righteous, and this forgiveness that we have brings this blessed result. We find it in chapter 5. We can call it reconciliation. Paul starts by saying, Therefore, being justified by faith. See, it's a, it flows out of this justification. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this peace? Look at verse 2. By whom also we have access by faith in this grace. Chapter 5, verse 2. Access to God. Why is this so amazingly powerful? Because without Jesus, you and I have no access to Christ. Even though the veil has been torn and open, if you have no faith in Jesus, it's like that veil is still there before you and God. And you cannot dare come in the presence of God without a mediator. But when you believe in Jesus, that veil that is torn is now open to you and you are in the presence of God. And when you have this axis in verse 2, you have also the hope that is in verse 2 and verse 4. Look, and patience, experience, and experience, hope. So number 5 is reconciliation. And then there's still one more great blessing that we can bring in terms of a summary and that brings out of our hearts gratitude. Number six, we find in chapter eight, Paul introduces the gift of the Holy Spirit and everything that the Holy Spirit does. He regenerates you. He sanctifies you. He helps you pray. He gives you strength to mortify sin. He gives you assurance of sonship and that you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ and therefore even assurance of glorification. So these, the summary of six phrases and thoughts and doctrines are the foundation of your holiness. They're also called the mercies of God. Now, let's look at how Paul, how Paul responded to this. Um, Let me see here. Yes, and this enters our second point, the heart of holiness. What I mean by the heart of holiness is this. Since we have just heard what the foundation of holiness is, holiness will come as you look at everything Jesus has done, as you respond by faith, and those are applied to your hearts. You can only do one thing, and this is gratitude. That is the heart of holiness. What I mean by the phrase heart of holiness is that your every act of obedience is to be seen in your heart that you're saying thank you to the Lord. Why do you obey your mom and your dad? Because you're thankful to the Lord. Why do we want to obey the rules? Because we want to be thankful to the Lord. Why do we want to come and worship Him on His set-apart day? Because we want to be thankful to the Lord. Why do we want to be a good husband and a good wife? Because we want to be thankful to the Lord. And look how, John, how Paul expressed his gratitude at the end of a great portion of this doctrine that we have summarized in chapter 8, verse 31 This is a fitting time to read this portion as we have all these doctrines before us. The the gospel itself, the reality of our sins, so that we know we need the gospel and the righteousness that is revealed, the forgiveness that we have, and, and, and the Holy Spirit that helps us live out and be holy as we're supposed to live. Reconciliation. How does Paul respond? Look at his gratitude. So beginning in verse 31 of chapter 8, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us 
Who shall separate us from the love of God, of love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In a sense, he's saying, will any of these things make us stop being grateful for what God has done? In verse 36, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, I am so grateful to God for all his mercies, for all his goodness. And then he says, and based then on these mercies, I plead with you, live as living sacrifices to God. Now, let's look at that verse, um, that, that part of the verse in verse 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, And he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, in this part of our second and last point, we will be doing four things. The first is considering this phrase, living sacrifices, that we are to be. Then we will look at the three qualifications that that these sacrifices are to be living, they are to be holy and acceptable. We'll look at that next. And then we'll see the two instructions in chapter 2, and not chapter, verse 2. There there are two um, directives there. And he ends with one result. One little, little in terms of words, but majestic in terms of reality. One result. So, first of all, the the living sacrifice. We are not speaking here of primarily offering to God your talents, your abilities, or your gifts, or your money, or your time, or your idea. It's nothing that you have to think in terms of putting it onto your hands and extending it, as it were, to offer it to God. You are not called to do that right here, specifically. This is not talking about something that can be placed in a collection plate. It is not something that you put in an envelope and you seal it and you mail it. It's not about writing certain books, what you would produce or do, like visiting the needy, hosting, giving Bible studies, ministering to missionaries. It's, it's not primarily an activity, and it's not primary, primarily an object. This is about you. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And we understand it's not just my body as if my heart or mind doesn't matter. In verse 2, he does imply the mind, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Paul is using the word body in saying, give me you, the totality of who you are. That is what I want. And you see what's happening. Based on everything that I have done, for you to say thank you, it means give me yourself. Everything. Don't leave anything behind. Give me yourself. Chrysostom, he said this about this concept of living sacrifice. How can a body be a sacrifice? He said, how is the body... Um, And how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? Then he said, let the eye look on no evil thing, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let thy tongue speak nothing filthy, and it hath become an offering. Let thine hand do no lawless deed, and it hath become a whole burnt offering. One commentator, Wilkins, he said this, It is not only what we can give that God demands, He demands the giver. We are in essence here being called to be like Jesus. Jesus came to this earth. 
He was the priest and he offered the sacrifice. And it was him, the Lamb of God. He was the offerer and he was the offering. This is also what Calvin says. He says, by bodies, he means not only our skin and bones, but the totality of which we are composed. He adopted this word that he might more fully designate all that we are. For the members of the body are the instruments by which we carry out our purposes. If you give your body, where are you going to put your heart? You see, your mind, your heart, your ideas all go with it. So that's what living sacrifices mean. A totality of yourself. But now let's look at those three descriptions. One of them is in the, in the very phrase living sacrifice, because it's the word living, and then holy, then acceptable. Well, living means not, not dying as the typical sacrifice was. You, know, you would put that lamb and it would die. But there's, there's a play in the whole reality of a sacrifice. You, you are to be as it were on an altar, but be living. And, and you are there being offered to God, but while you are living upon this earth. Not, dying, not, not dead, but living. And then holy. Well, that also was regarding the sacrifices. Every single sacrifice to be given to God had to be holy. It had to be set apart. It had to be the best. It had to have no blemish. It was a, a healthy animal, not lame. It, it could not be blind or sick. So this word, together with living, you see the reality of, of obedience and of good works. That as you live and walk upon this world, you are to be separate from this world, living unto God in gratitude and obedience. And then acceptable. Living a holy life is pleasing to God. And that's what matters. Be completely Devoid of any concern of being accepted or approved by others. What matters is to be approved of God. And this is not something just for the New Testament. Even, even Old Testament saints understood this principle. Remember in Second Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, it says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So even as they brought these sacrifices, they needed to understand it's not that God prefers the sacrifices and I can live whichever way I want. God prefers my obedience even than this sacrifice that I'm offering. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen: the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. So, so the sacrifice was really to be an emblem of the person who was offering it. They were to bring that animal thinking, I am to be like that animal. Just as I am giving this animal to God, I want to say, Lord, I'm giving myself to you. And, and, and it was spoken especially in the burnt offering. Because remember, the burnt offering was that animal part of the offering. It can only happen after the sin offering. Forgiveness was asked, redemption was, was applied, and now you could offer the burnt offering. The burnt offering had two elements to it. You were still asking forgiveness for sins, but you were offering yourself completely to the Lord because that was the offering where nobody touched it. It was not to be cut any part separate. It was the whole burnt offering. That's where the word holocaust comes from. The idea of an offering being fully given to God. And the offer was communicating just as this animal is given fully to God. So, Lord, have me as thine own. See, that was in the Old Testament. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. Live as a holy sacrifice, acceptable unto God. So we saw living sacrifices. We saw the three um, descriptions. But now let's look at the two instructions. They come in verse 2. Something not to do, something to do. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the way you should see this is under the theme of gratitude, 
This, this is in specifics how I will show my gratitude to God. I will look at the world and I will not let the world conform me and I will have my mind transformed unto God. And in, a, in doing this, I am being grateful to what God has done. Now the first phrase, be not conformed to this world. You, you may have heard this before. The word conformed really has this idea of, of a mold as it were. The world is trying to be this. It wants us to fit into its mold so that we would think like the world, so that we would act like the world. And eventually, and in places, people are persecuted because they're not doing just that. And God's word says, don't do that. Don't, don't be conformed to this world. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about the world. And to help us understand, um, beloved, as we look at the world and we see the, the thought pattern of the world, as we see the ideals of the world, it's of the evil one, God's word says. Look what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The devil and the forces of evil are exercising a pervasive and controlling influence and power upon the world of the life of humanity. The world is being governed by a malign, malign power, the head of which is the devil, the god of this world the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 2. And so why would we want to be conformed to that? And we saw those religious systems, humanism and spiritism and Islam and, and Mormonism. Those are all parts of how the world finds its ways to serve themselves. Satan is behind each and every one of these false religions and we are not to be conformed to them, but there's something positive. We are to be transformed, like completely changed by the renewing of your mind. We are to be transformed. We are to be made new. And, and this, beloved, is where, where God's Word comes in place and the Spirit. We, the Spirit is already given to every believer, but you are to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the Spirit will use the Word, and it will be, be that sword that will be used for every kind of temptations that the world will try to bring upon you. And the world will try to conform you, but the Spirit living in you and instructing you through the power of the Word, you will be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Notice how there's this reality. We're not talking here of something just mystical in the sense that it, it will just happen to you. No, it, it shows your responsibility to have your mind where the Word is being informing your heart, where you're reading God's Word, where you're listening to sermons, where you're being instructed, and your mind is being transformed. So those are the two, the two directives. And then notice it ends with a little um, a result. I say little because of the few words, but it is a powerful and big result. It says that. So in order to, this is what will happen if this happens to you. If you are not conformed to the world and if you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, this is what will happen. You may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we're not talking here simply so that you will know the future. There's almost a certain mysticism in Christianity where people want to know God's will because they just want to know the future. Who will I marry? Where will I live? What should I do? We need to be careful that we're not just wanting to know God's will in that way almost out of curiosity. This is something very profound and deep. It's the result of this imploring of Paul. Paul is saying, I implore that based on all that I have said, the mercies of God, you will offer your whole entire self as a living holy and acceptable sacrifice. Don't let the world control you, but be transformed in your mind, and this will happen. You will know God's will. You will prove it. You will see that it's good. Now, why is this so powerful and important at this point? Because we have just spoken of presenting 
everything. Now, the family that brought that little lamb and put it on the altar, the, the whole dynamic of presenting the lamb and whatever food offering, whatever other will offerings, free will offerings that they would bring, there was this one universal reality. They went home without it. It was given. It was God's. If they gave a lamb, they would go home without the lamb. If you offer your time, your time is gone. If you offer your money, it is spent. If you offer your home, it is then occupied. If you offer your body, it belongs to someone else. When you offer it to God, it is His. And what does that mean? It means you have nothing left. You're not giving your money to God. And then you still have more money and you have your hand and you have your mind. You you see what Paul is saying, give everything to God. You're no longer your own. And all of a sudden, what matters most is this. What is God's will? Because I'm His. I'm in His hands. I have nothing left. I don't have an agenda anymore in a sense because if I'm His, what matters an agenda? What matters what I wanted to do here or there if if I'm fully His? Heart and soul and mind and body. Now I hang at the will of God. That's what matters to me. What is thy will, O Lord? And see, what follows is chapter 12 and following, of course, where now he starts saying, this is my will. This is what I want you to do. And it's emphatic that the very first thing, verse 3, that we read is like a foundation of what will follow. And we could summarize it under the word humility. He starts there. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, that's chapter 12, verse 3, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. The first sin that is laid to the ground in death is pride. Don't you dare think more highly of yourself than you think. This is what Paul is saying. That's where you start. You start with a humble heart. It's in essence saying everything that will follow that you're to obey will never happen if your heart isn't broken, if you're not humble. And now think, if we've been understanding, how, how can I think more highly of myself if I'm not even my own? And I really believed when I went back to chapter 1 that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner. I'm more wicked than that religious sinner. I'm more wicked than that moral man. I'm, I'm more wicked than those very first ones that Paul said where all of those wicked sins were there. We can find sins there, beloved, that we find in our hearts. You see, when we, when we really... Obey the begging summons of Paul. And we go back to those mercies. We realize there's only one thing to do. And that is to be grateful. And a grateful beggar. And a beggar has nothing to think of himself. With no house to go to. No food. No money. His own body is no longer his. Won't you want to know the will of God? And when he says his will, he says, just be humble. And he goes precept by precept from there on. This is really, in a a word, and and I close here, it is, with all these many words, it is Paul saying, be like Jesus. Who was God? Is God. He came as a servant. And he did not consider it too great that even though he was God, he was still a man.
and he became a slave, as it were, among us and died. And of all deaths, the death of crucifixion. And he bore our sins on the cross. It's amazing to think that Jesus was exactly this, such a living sacrifice, that at the end he was the sacrifice. And as we look at that, we can say, Lord, I'm so grateful that you did that for me. Help me to be this living sacrifice. Lord, that the whole world now may matter no longer to me, and that what matters is to know thy will, to be accepted by thee, to be a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice for thine honor and glory. This is why we obey, because we want to be grateful to God. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, for Thy will. and We pray that we would understand, Lord, this, this summons to obedience and how it is grounded in Thy grace and grounded in Thy mercies. Lord, we pray that Thou would open hearts who have never come to the Lord Jesus, that they would see that, that they need Christ, they need a Savior, and they need to look to Jesus with true faith and repentance. And then they will have received all these blessings that we are to go on the rest of our lives being grateful for. And even in heaven, our gratitude will certainly not end there. We will only know better what we are to be grateful for so that our praise of God will never end but only become greater and greater. And we pray, Lord, may souls who have not yet begun be enabled to begin such praise and such gratitude here on earth, Lord. Save those who are lost and help us, Lord, who may have professed our faith and who... who who have been servants of Thine, help us, Lord, to remember these premises, these principles that are so precious, that we would not try to please Thee with our holiness as if attaining some kind of favor from Thee, but that we would do it, Lord, out of gratitude for all of the blessings that Thou hast given us in Thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen.